welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Welcome, and I can tell you that you're in for a treat today. I'm talking with Jennifer Mankoff, who's an endowed professor in the School of Computer Science and Engineering at University of Washington in the US. Jen's journey to this position, though, has been far from straightforward because she's had to deal with and continues to deal with significant ongoing chronic health issues that started during her PhD. I found it really inspiring the way in which Jen talks about managing disabilities in academic and in particular her positive framing of her experiences and her generosity in pointing to the support of her family and her colleagues. She also has interesting experiences to share about being part of an academic couple as well as managing parenting and extended family caring roles. I was enormously humbled and inspired by this conversation And it's part of Jen's call for all of us to share our own experiences, not just of successes, but also what's hard, and to give the message that we can all go through these hard times and that we can find ways forward in joy. So, Jen, thank you very much for joining me today. Sure. There are lots of things I'd love to talk to you about because I think you've got lots to share around issues around, you know, being part of a a couple with both with academic careers in the same uh, disciplinary area, and also dealing with chronic disease, which has been sort of a more recent experience for you. Kind of a theme. Kind of Even a theme. in grad school. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I had a repetitive strain injury for most of my graduate school career and which, almost left the field because of it. Wow. I mean, that's not very good to have when you're trying to write a thesis. No, especially a computer and a computer science, like toolkit-y kind of. Yeah thesis yeah. <laughs> requires a lot of programming. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So what, what did you do? Uh, well, I had a really supportive advisor, <laughs> which made a huge difference. Um, and I, I decided to be a vet and I started taking pre-med courses and <laughs> followed a large animal vet around for a summer. And, um, yeah, <laughs> And then, but, but you're clearly not a vet now. No. no. <laughs> um, so I, I make decisions in Beethoven concerts, and I went to this all Beethoven <laughs> concert with a completely unrelated issue in mind that I had apparently already figured out, and I left it realizing I was going to stay in computer science. And I think some of the things I realized were that like typing is more and more part of what has to happen in the world, and mm. I wasn't going to just... In fact, I might be in a less sympathetic environment in like vet school where people didn't know me and understand what I needed and yeah. stuff. And um, and I had that amazing support that Gregory was providing. And um, so this was at Georgia Tech and yeah. Gregory. And, and I um, had in that year that I was only able to type half an hour a day, published and finished a significant piece of implementation because I had um, been very careful never to miss a day. What, just doing the 30 minutes? Yeah, or 30 minutes twice a day, right. like morning and evening, yeah. you know, and I yeah. just never skipped. And it turns out that when you never skip a day, you can actually get something done, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then, and Gregory, I could write, and Gregory would, you know, hired peop- uh, an undergraduate to help with some of the 
um, transcription of some of my writing. And I had, in college, been on the equestrian team pre-laptop era and done a lot of programming on paper. Mm. And so I, I knew a little bit about how to write something that I sort of debug it in my head and get it so that yeah. when I put it in, it was yeah. useful enough to be move uh-huh. forward quickly. And so somehow I looked back and I thought, I actually did something that would be seen as productive in my field in that time, even with this injury, and maybe I can make it work, you know? Um, And so I kept going and uh, also had, you know, I I remember a programming language instructor who let me write an essay and just because I sort of verbally showed him that I understood the material well enough before the class even started. It was just a required class. and So I had these little bits of support here and there that really made a big difference. And uh, so, yeah, I decided to stick with it. And I worked my way up to two hours um, a day, or maybe it was even twice a day by the time I graduated. So I was also slowly improving, you know. So that's that's, um, something that's actually recommended by lots of people as a good writing strategy to begin with, isn't it? That write something every day. Yeah. Well, I would say one of the things that I gained from that experience was an excellent set of time management skills. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, very quickly got me past the assumption I had when I left college that it wasn't worth writing, uh, writing or doing programming if you didn't have at least four hours free and that you had to sort of build this headspace up in order to accomplish anything. And instead, what I discovered was that when I did it every day, I had a constant awareness of what I was working on because there weren't these big gaps. And I was actually able to ideate and make progress more. And I also made more time for reading because I could read papers easily. Like, and I was taking care of myself. I was sleeping. I was doing yoga. I was exercising. All these things that we neglect that actually impact our productivity negatively. And so when I got into my first faculty position and a year later had a child, I was productive because I knew how to work with small chunks of time. I knew how to take care of myself. And I would go to these meetings with peers at Berkeley um, junior faculty where people would go around the table boasting about how many hours they were working that week. And I was very proud. This was even pre-kid that, you know, I clocked in at about 55 and was in an orchestra and, and had time for myself and was also being productive. So I learned a lot of really, really useful things from that experience in, the, in, in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they sound like really useful things. And it's a shame that you have to go through a chronic sort of condition to learn them, but they're, they're, they're the things that we all should be doing in that looking after ourselves, taking time to read, um, that probably informs the writing in lots of interesting ways. Right, yeah. And that, you know, I think what you're pointing to is sort of that false sense of productivity that we have to be there tapping away at the keyboard for four hours and then we're productive and doing stuff. Whereas it's all this other stuff in the headspace that allows you to think. Yeah. And, I, you know, also another trick I learned was sort of to, um, to take care of the, the grunt work, the, the, other, the things that don't require attention in the times between, right? And so, so that um, I could use the time that I had to be productive as effectively as possible. And mm. I learned to recognize mm. when it was useful to sit down and code or type or do something really important and when it was less useful. And so, I mean, these are all time management skills that whatever particular style of time management you ascribe to, knowing how to do these things is going to make it go better. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was, it was a really positive learning experience in the end to have gone through that. Um, and it just made faculty life so much easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
It's a shame that people had to sit around and boast about how many hours they were working. <laughs> but 55 still sounds a lot. Yeah, right. It... <laughs> and that's interesting that you know, your 55 was on the lower end of the scale from the sounds of it. It was far lower than anyone else in the room, yeah. Also, I was one of the few women in the room and you know, all of that stuff as well. But I, I have not always worked 55. I mean, I think there were times when I had, I was you know, breastfeeding or pregnant for four years straight, and then right after that I got Lyme disease, and there were certainly periods in my career where I was working as little as 35. Mm. You know? And I, I regularly teach time management, so I clock it once or twice a year, and so I know how these numbers have gone up and down, mm. and um, that's harder to, to do the faculty job with that number. So right. 35 isn't doable, really? No, well. Or harder? I, it's harder. Yeah. Um, I was, again, lucky enough to be in a very supportive environment where um, my department was willing to give me teaching leaves, service leaves, and I, so I was able to remove everything that wasn't directly... I mean, I did not not teach at all. I didn't mm. do zero service. But mm. for the most part, I was able to hone in on the things that were most productive in moving my tenure case forward with the support of my department when I was really sick. And so those 35 hours were, and, and not just my department, you know, it, it was also really critical that Anind was there supporting me because and I couldn't... That's your, that's that's your... my spouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't always predict when I would be productive. And so with two young kids at home, there were these moments I distinctly remember being like, take the kids. I need to go right, right now because my brain is clear. Right. And so I, I preserved the moments when I was intellectually most capable mm-hmm. for work and mm-hmm. learned how to parent in those moments when I was less intellectual, but could still be the loving body that mm. my children needed. Mm. And, and when I couldn't move as quickly or do as much, I learned how to parent slowly, which I think was also a positive, you know? And so, so what does that mean? Not to measure parenting success by the amount that was accomplished, but instead by the quality of time that I spent with the mm-hmm. kids, you know? So we were working on it. I remember working on a cloche with them in the garden and instead of taking over and like trying to make the cloche get What's finished, a it's a, um, a structure that you can put like a, uh, plastic over to keep the garden bed warm in oh, cool weather. Okay. Right. And so we had these PVC pipes that we had to bend and, and screw into the garden bed and we would go out there for an hour and or half an hour or something and maybe get two screws in because the kids were doing everything and instead of trying to take over and move forward on the project I was just enjoying the half hour with the kids out there and it took us months to finish the thing and I would never have felt I wouldn't have had the insight to do it that way, I think, if I hadn't been sick. But because I, like, even screwing was, you know, kind of hard and they yeah. wanted to do it, it was fine to just, to let them. And, and, it, and instead of measuring our parenting moments by the progress we were making on the close, I was just mm. measuring them by the quality time we had together. Oh, that's you lovely. Know? So, so I had this support structure so that I could write when I was clear-headed enough to write and you know, nap or parent or mm. do whatever else I needed when that's what I needed and, and not, not waste time. Not that it's wasted when you have the capability to do more on anything that was going to not directly contribute to my tenure case. And so even with only 35 hours, I was, it was like the, the focus yeah. was on the sort of most central 35 hours of stuff that so you could do. So you were doing, you were in a tenure track position. You had two kids during this time, and you were dealing with Lyme disease. Yeah. And you made it through. 
I, uh, the weekend that my department voted on my tenure case was the same weekend that I gave my first invited talk at Grace Hopper and that my doctor in New York, because I had to travel to mm-hmm. get treated, uh, told me I could stop antibiotics for the Lyme disease. <laughs> so that was a good weekend. It was an amazing that's, weekend. That's, that is brilliant. <laughs> so it sounds like you were really strategic in how you made use of that time. Yeah. And you said that the support of the faculty and people was, was critical in enabling that, in, in removing the service. How did you go about making the case to them? Like, <laughs> that, you know, that was the wonderful thing was that I didn't really have to. I remember talking to my department chair before I had a diagnosis, and I was teaching two courses and overwhelmed and didn't know what was going on. And um, I went in and I said, something's wrong. <laughs> I think I need a teaching leave next semester so I can figure this out. And he said, done. <laughs> you know, and, um, and then a student in the department who had TA'd one of the classes the previous year stepped up and took over for two weeks. Mm-hmm. I was co-teaching. Mm-hmm. Took over my half of it for two weeks so I could just, just like rest at home and try to get back on my feet for that in that semester when I was overdoing it. And nobody ever said well, where's the proof that you need this? Or is this AD, an ADA request? Or, you know, and... Um, ADA being... A, a, a disability-related mm-hmm. thing, right? Because there's legal mm-hmm. structures that right. can support you. I never mm-hmm. had to fight those battles when I was in the midst of it. And then, um, you know, I would, like... I, I would bike to work, and then sometimes I would get there, and I would be, like, unable to get myself home, and I had colleagues who would just give me a ride, and... You know, um, and uh, Scott Hudson, for example, right? And he he also um, started... This is now at CMU. At CMU, yeah, he helped. So was it CMU where you did your tenure track? Uh, so I started at Berkeley, but I followed my husband to CMU mm-hmm. two years in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was at CMU for 14 years. So right. this happened there. Our child was born at CMU, and then yeah. um, and all of this happened while I was there. And um, so I had, you know, just this sort of sense of, or, you know, I think, I feel like it was Scott too, who like co-taught with me the following fall when I wasn't sure if I could teach or not, even though he had other responsibilities, you know, and so there was just this, this sort of holding of mm-hmm. what I needed and, mm-hmm. and, and I was never questioned. And for, uh, with an invisible chronic illness like that, to have that kind of support was just incredible. That is amazing. They're, that's they're brilliant colleagues. Yeah. Um, so can, can you just explain a little bit about the impacts of Lyme disease, you know, how, you, how you experience them? Well, um, it changes over time, you know, yeah. but it, it started with just fatigue. Oh. And I was told that, and I was also like my hearing was affected. And so I, I went to the doctor and he said, well, you probably have a virus and aren't you a little lo- young to lose your hearing? So, you know, it, it wasn't the same in the medical system, the same level of trust and support. Right. And just waited out. And then um, my hand, my shoulders and my jaw froze up at one point and I couldn't like lift my kids. So my brother flew in and helped because an inn was traveling. And so all of these sort of unknown things were happening. And, and a colleague at CMU, um, suggested that I meet with a massage therapist and I had not been able to afford that when I had 
RSI and thought, well, okay, maybe I have RSI actually because my shoulders are hurting, they're mm. frozen, mm. right? And I can afford this now. And so I, I met with her and she's the person who said, you sound a lot like my patients who have Lyme disease. Has anyone evaluated you for it? And so then I, I, um, I started um, asking for the tests and it took another three months before I was diagnosed. And in the meantime, I developed cognitive symptoms as well. And so I was having trouble with... Um, spelling. I was substituting like night for day without realizing it when I spoke and I became clumsy. I could most many nights in a row where I would like reach for a glass of water, I would knock things over at the dinner table. And so this was very scary. I was um, just going to say that must have been really worrying. Academic, you know, and I, um, I was lucky that I was not misdiagnosed with MS or ALS or something else mm-hmm. um, in this period. And then when I was given the Lyme diagnosis, um, they put an IV line in and I had, um, I had a pick line that went into my heart and I had IV antibiotics for six weeks. Um, so instead of putting the kids to bed every night, I was infusing and at my, the final exam in one of those two courses I was teaching, I was having like a nurse came to change my dressings and, you know, it was. (laughs) So you didn't take time off in this. You were still working. I was, well, I had. I was teaching two courses and one of them in particular is a very tough one. And, you know, to, to take, take, to stop partway through the semester. Mm. I mean, we all face this, or I don't know, many academics I know when they're having a child and it's, it's due date is like partway through the quarter or the semester. It's, it's a difficult decision how to handle, but you, you don't want to just disappear halfway through, right? You either plan to take that semester off or you stick it out and you take a week or two. So I took the following semester off, right? Um, so my pick line came out on the 24th of December. I still remember, you know, and, um, and then it took another six months before I started treatment again because I was told by the medical system that I was either cured or would be sick for the rest of my life because um, mm. it's a very controversial illness. And it took me a while to discover that there was another opinion about how to treat it. And that's why I ended up with a doctor in New York. So, right. um, so then my symptoms sort of changed. So the cognitive stuff began to resolve, although it was still an issue for a while after that. And there were some very difficult moments in like program committee meetings or conference talks where I was affected, um, by my issues, mm-hmm. which hadn't fully resolved yet. And I mean, I still get, you know, brain fog sometimes, but that's different because you can just, I can wait for the moments yeah. when that clears up. So I tried out a wheelchair at one point. I, and then, uh, you know, and that was part of what was hard about it was the unpredictability of the symptoms. So there was a day when I went in just for an hour for a faculty meeting and I suddenly had this moment. I just couldn't like lift a finger without being out of breath. And it was very scary and it was traveling. And I texted a colleague and said, I, I'm stuck in my office. Can you help me get home? Wow. And they had to like lift my legs into the car and drive me home and drive my car home and get me settled and bring me medicine. And I, I just couldn't, it took me four or five hours to be able to like sit up and move without, you know, hyperventilating because I was so out of breath. And, um, and then that, once I got used to that symptom, it wouldn't last as long, but it still happens even now sometimes where I'll be fine. And then suddenly I, like I'll walk up a flight of stairs and it'll mm. take me five minutes to catch mm. my breath. It's, mm. it's not as severe. And so, um, so I had to just kind of see these things would come and, and sort of adjust to them. And then, and now, so now it's mostly like headaches and dizziness and it comes and goes. So and how many years is it now since diagnosis? 
I was diagnosed in 2007. Right. Uh, so, so you're the you're the chronic version then from yes. the from but, the but I'm much better. I mean, I it's not I my my lifestyle management techniques and my illness have both progressed to the point where it doesn't affect me on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it does pop up, most weeks in which it pops up, I would say almost every week there's some symptoms, but mm. it might just last for a couple of hours, or I'll I'll take it easy for the rest of the day, and then it will sort of fade or, and even the relapses when I have them that last longer, they're like lower impact than they Mm -hmm. used to be. And Mm -hmm. so it's, I mean, I'm very lucky. A lot of people with Lyme disease lose their jobs and they're, you know, lose their ability to leave the house even, or end up in Mm -hmm. wheelchairs or other things like that when it's chronic and, and treatment fails. And, and in my case, you know, I made it through the 10 year process. I work full time. Um, and really now not, not 35 hours a week, but truly full time, you know, um, I, I didn't, my marriage didn't break apart. It's another thing that often happens when you're dealing with these kinds yes, of things, right? Yes, because was, of the burden on the yeah, whole family. Yeah. Um, my kids are fine, you know, yeah, so yeah. I, and every, every day that I have energy, full energy all day long, I get to feel grateful for it because I don't lose, I, I have enough reminders in my life of what else it could be that yeah. I have that gratitude. So, yeah. um, and you know, I also signal, like I use a cane, not only when I absolutely need to lean on it, but also partly because it's nice for me to know that it's not invisible when I'm not feeling well. Um, And so it's there if I need it to lean on, but it's also there just to create a a sense of visibility for me. And I'm in a position in my career where I don't have to hide it. Right. And not that I would think I ever should have to hide it, but I really don't have to worry at this point. You know, Mm. I'm respected for the fact that I manage my career with a disability. Yeah. Um, I know that it helps students to see that this exists. And so if anything, it's empowering to pull it out. Right. So. So you're pretty amazing in the way that you're. You're choosing to, you know, you've made choices in the framing of this. So, you know, the learning of really good uh, time management skills and being strategic and looking after yourself, the the practice of gratitude that, you know, the, all the research says is so valuable in all sorts of ways for, you know, physical, mental health and well-being. And, and just being that statement about the visibility of chronic conditions and that you can still be a successful, productive, um, you know, career person, academic, with a family. That's pretty amazing. Like you're not sitting here complaining. <laughs> did you ever? I, did, I mean, did it, was it a journey to get to that position or is that where you tend to come from naturally in responding to challenges? I think it's both. I mean, you know, there are certainly, I can remember multiple instances when I was, you know, sitting with somebody I trusted and just in tears because I didn't know mm. if I could succeed with this. You know, mm. I, I have had conversations where I said, you have to tell me if I'm a burden on this department because I will quit. I'm, it's I, like know, caring for the other people and the impact that your condition is having on them. Well, but not just, I mean, I, it's, 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 um, it's that, that worry about, I don't know, imposter syndrome isn't the right word, but it's that it, one of the difficult things about having an illness like this is that you have this internal 
knowledge of what you are capable of mm. when you are healthy mm. and you know you're not living up to that. And so on top of wondering if like, you know, the imposter syndrome, there's also this, this, this knowledge that like, here's where you are and here's where you mm. could be if mm. you were healthy. And how can people love you for where you are when you could be doing more? Um, so I don't know. It's very hard to accept second best constantly, mm. right? When you're even wondering anyway, if you're good enough as a woman yes. or this or that. Yeah. And um, so that's one of the challenges. And so this sort of, it, it, it just feeds further, I think, into that worry about being yeah. an imposter. And yeah. so that's hard. Um, and then the other thing about an illness like mine, at least, and I'm sure it's different for each person who's going through this, but um, I also was frequently found myself wondering, and I was one of the reasons I'm so grateful for the moments when I felt healthy being it's sort of like the clouds lifting and a little bit of sun coming through, you know, was that it was only in those moments that I could be a hundred percent certain that I wasn't bringing this on myself, that I wasn't choosing illness or weak or, or somehow too weak and that, that, that it wasn't the case that somebody else who was stronger or maybe, you know, maybe there, or that maybe there was a mental health issue because that's often something that is yeah. assigned when people don't have an explanation. Right. Um, that maybe there was something I was doing that was making it hard for me to be successful and to be healthy. And then I would have these moments, days or hours where I had energy and I was clear headed. And it was so obvious that I wouldn't choose the other. Yes. That I wasn't, there were no secondary gains. There was no reason why I would do less than my best, yeah. you know, and um, obviously I was doing my best when I wasn't well, but I, the best I could do. Under exactly. The circumstances. I was going to say that <laughs> yes. comment to your thing about second best that you made before. That but that's how it feels, right? So like, you know, that you could do this much more, or you imagine what you could do and, and how could people love you for where you are when, you know, so that's the struggle for me. That was the, that was the emotional struggle. And, and I, you know, eventually had to learn to love myself for where I was in order to accept it. So, yeah. <laughs> But it's frustrating, you know. So, yeah, I had those moments for sure. <laughs> That's a pretty amazing journey. What I think is also really interesting is the way that you have brought that experience into your research because you do a lot of research. A lot of your research agenda is framed around technology for supporting people with disability, chronic illness in some way. Was there a... A strategic choice in doing that? I I don't know. I maybe. <laughs> I mean, when I decided to stay in grad school back, you know, in the vet era, one of the things I decided in that moment was that I was going to try to make technology that was more useful for people who couldn't type. Right. That was uh, a motivating. Yeah. And, that, and that led to my thesis work on how difficult it was to build interfaces that made use of error prone input technologies and how we could provide better toolkit level support for building error correction techniques into the interface mm -hmm. at the time when it was being designed. Right. So and then I had a, a friend, Melody Moore, who was working with people who were locked in with um, neural implants yeah. in their motor cortex of their brains. And well, how could you not sign on for, that was just fascinating, right? So I did that for fun. And then 
when I got to Berkeley, um, I was sort of known already for doing assistive technology work. And then, you know, within a week of my arrival there, uh, uh, a man in a wheelchair rolled into my office to say, you know, you need to know about what the disability rights movement is about. And there was a disability studies department there. And so they started educating me. And in that period also, I had the first time, the first experience in my life of being labeled as disabled because I was trying to open a door actually back at Georgia Tech that using the button because my hands hurt too much when I pushed the big heavy doors open and the button didn't work. And this man, I don't know who he was. He walked past me muttering about how awful it was when we didn't support people with disabilities and opened the door for me. And I was like, who's he talking about? You know? And, um, and that, that was the beginning of my eyes opening to what it meant to adopt, uh, identity as a woman with a disability. Mm. And I, I resisted it at first and eventually came to embrace it. And, um, so it wasn't just strategic. It was like these random opportunities and people who opened my eyes to different aspects of it. Um, and then, you know, when I had Lyme disease, I was doing this online ethnography of Lyme information just to figure out what I needed to figure out to manage it. And I was like thinking about, all of the time I was spending on that and how little time I had for work. And so I thought, well, I should submit an NSF grant because I'm writing, I'm doing all this research (laughs) on this. I might as well write it up. And it was funded and that was both empowering and um, helpful Mm. in my attempt to get tenure that that happened. Um, And, um, and you could layer the finding information for your own, you know, information, own needs, and for research. And also get research out of it. Yeah, but it was also very hard. I, the first presentation I gave about that work was at WISH, and um, I remember trying to answer questions after the talk and having one of these cognitive blips where I couldn't remember the question that had been asked of me. It was like a double-barreled question, and by the second half of the sentence, I had forgotten the first half. And I, I, I stumbled through, and you know, my part of my identity of a researcher, one of the things that I excel at is talking off the cuff and answering questions. And I was sitting. Unfortunately, the speakers were all expected to sit on stage facing the audience, and I was sitting there while the next talk began, fighting tears. And I had a friend in the audience. I think it was Jillian Hayes who was who noticed, and she's like, points out the door, you know, and she's like, you can leave, you know? And so I, I just got up and ran off the stage yeah. while this other speaker was talking and opened the first door I saw. And it was in this service hallway. And I sat down and put my arms around my knees and just started sobbing, you know, yeah. letting it out. And eventually two or three of my colleagues who knew me well came and found me and hugged me and held me. And I, I got through it, but it was hard to talk about something yeah. that personal, you know, and I, I'm glad I did it. And I've continued to do that kind of work, but, um, it is not always easy and it's not always right for every person to yeah. study their own situation. Right. So. Yeah. Cause there's that distance that's needed for research. And yet that very personal lived experience of the content of what you're researching. Yeah. And I mean, I think it helps give you empathy and insights that you might not have, mm. but it's not always right. Mm. So so I, I went back and forth. You know, I also did all that sustainability work. And um, and thank goodness I had colleagues who supported me in that, too. So, you know, James Landay, for example, 
he and I had simultaneously had a similar idea, and this was, I had just switched areas to sustainability, which didn't exist yet as a keyword at Kai. My publication rate dropped because it was a total area switch. I got Lyme disease a year later, and I was between associate, my associate promotion and my tenure promotion. And James said, well, why don't we collaborate on this? And that paper is one of my most highly cited papers that helped me get my tenure case yeah. through, you know, yeah. so... <sighs> So stuff has worked out as well. Yeah. Well, and he was there, you know, every time I was having a moment where I was like, can I do this? What am I doing trying to work through a chronic illness like this and stay in my full-time job? Mm. I would IM him and he'd be, you can do this. You're amazing. We're lucky to have you in the field. And <laughs> so, you know, those those little moments when people need support and somebody steps up are yeah. huge. Yeah. And this is someone who wasn't in your university. Well, he was a mentor of mine at Berkeley. Yeah. But yeah, we were, I left Berkeley, so yeah. did he. Yeah. Uh, we were just friends. <laughs> so. Mm. Yeah. I think, you know, and that's, so that's, it's very important to me to support people around me 100% when mm. I think they might need it. And sometimes that means taking a risk and saying something that might offend, mm. but often it just means telling them that you're there for them or that they can do it. And, you know, I think those are those seemingly inconsequential moments, which are not about publishing a paper or moving a research project forward, are critically important to including everyone in the field who's capable of being included. So, And it's about those, those moments of care, as you said, that are really important and that none of us do the work that we do without the support of lots of people anyway. Whether we're sick or healthy. Yes, uh, exactly. And that just making that a normal part of the culture of care. And... It seems like you must have had a big role in creating that culture because you're talking about relationships where people are, you know, do reach out and support you and multiple people. And it sounds like that's something that grew out of a two-way relationship, you know, that you had a big part yourself in setting them up in the beginning. I mean, I, I've just been, I've been lucky to have really good mentors in my life. And I do think that... Um, it's it's about relationships, right? And that putting relationships and standing up for people first is an important part of how I like to run my group and my career mm. and my relationships. Mm. But I also just had really good people in my life who shared that value, I think. And what that also is pointing to is just recognizing that we bring our whole selves to work. You know, that we're not just defined by the papers we produce, but that you know, we are bringing our full lives that might include chronic disease or might include anxiety or whatever's going on. I've never been good at separating them. You know, mm. I, um, I don't know how to do that. I need to be able to look my crying toddler in the eye and say, what I'm about to go do and leave you behind to do is more important than you right now. Mm. And to look my students in the eye and say, my child's need for me is more important than you right now. Mm. And have both of those be acceptable. Yeah. And, yeah. and I do both. Yeah. 
Um, and so I, you know, I put out a weekly newsletter to my students with what's going on in my personal life and what's going on in my professional life and how I'm planning on juggling this week because every week is different. And I hope that they will also share with me when they have a need to focus their energy in a different way. I think that's really fascinating that you, you, you know, that's another example of you bringing your whole self to work and, and making visible your personal life and your work life and how you're negotiating and juggling that together. So that's role modeling in important ways. Do they ever respond or, or comment on it? Sometimes, yeah. As a practice or just on specific sort of things that you're reporting? Just occasionally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly a one-way communication, I think. Yeah. It's more often in person than in email also when it happens, right? Yeah. Um, but it's mostly just a, this is where my energy is this week and less of a thing that necessarily needs response. Mm. Um, so is it a long email or a page or a... <laughs> bullet points. I'm just curious because how much work it takes to do that. No, it's really important to me to do it because I need to figure out my plan for the week. And it varies Ah. in length. You know, sometimes I will put in extra effort and also talk about my time management strategies that week. So not only the, so I always have a paragraph or two. um, I try to put kudos in for like things my students have accomplished. I talk about more so in the past, you know, if Anin was traveling and when I had younger kids, that was always a big issue that I had to put yeah. a little bit of time into yeah. um, other kinds of things. Sometimes if there's a health issue or something else that I'm, that's worrying me, I'll put that in, you know, and then um, sort of what is my, often I'll put what is my focus for the week, but not always. And then if I'm trying to model time management, I'll talk about, then I always have each weekday and sort of what's happening that's scheduled on each day. And, you know, if I need a student to rearrange or have a meeting at a different time, mm-hmm. I'll ask about mm-hmm. that. If it's close to the CHI deadline, I might have a list of papers we're submitting and queries or comments about where they are and what I need from my students on those fronts. And then if I'm modeling time management, I will sort of fill in the gaps in my schedule with how I'm planning on using my time at those moments or what I'm trying to get done each day. And regardless of how much of that I expose in the email, the act of going through my schedule and checking that I don't have any conflicts is really helpful to mm. me in planning my week yeah. because every week is different. I don't know, with, with an, you know, older parents to take care of who are ill and two kids who have various issues that they're dealing with and a spouse who may or may not be traveling, um, sometimes I need to be at a doctor's appointment when I should be in a meeting. or And so that helps me. It's those moments somewhere between Friday and Sunday when I also send out email to faculty collaborators if there's something that has to change. Um, but it saves me a lot of time, actually. Mm. It saves me error to organize my thoughts that way, and it saves me time to request that my students all read one message and let me know if they see an issue with how I rearranged. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I like the dual purpose of it, that it gets your head straight for the next week because every week's different for you and, and that it's, a, it's communicating to people, setting expectations, um, filling in the, the help and support that's needed you know, to make that happen. So you, you mentioned about an end uh, working a lot as well and being in the same field. Can you talk a little, reflect a little bit about being part of a couple where you're both in the same disciplinary area and you know, issues around working together, getting jobs, you know, in the, where you can live in the same place? Well, we've been very lucky on the job front. Mm-hmm. Um, we've always had 
an opportunity that worked for both of us when we needed it. So um, that's been a good thing, right? Um, and I, it's not easy, um, but we've, as I said, we've been lucky. And um, and you've recently just moved to Washington. Yeah. Yep, we you did. You knew Washington. So, um, and it, it, now we're actually in different departments. So he's dean of the iSchool, and I am in the College of Engineering and the um, Allen School of Computer Science. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's probably the furthest apart we've been. Well, when we moved to Berkeley... Because you um, met in grad school. We met in grad school. Yeah. And um, Anind, when we moved to Berkeley, Anand wasn't sure yet if he wanted to be an academic. And he also didn't want me... I, I wouldn't have even applied to Berkeley, actually, if it hadn't been for James Landay, who <laughs> said you should apply. But I didn't think Berkeley would ever hire me, you know? Um, and It's a good imposter syndrome. Right? <laughs> yep. Um, and then when, it, when they did offer me the position, and then didn't want me to turn that opportunity down, and so he, he took the position at Intel, and that over time it became clear that it wasn't necessarily the right fit, mutually speaking, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, CMU did see that, and they wanted both of us. And so mm. that was the right kind of two-body mm, hire. Right. So it's not surprising yeah. that we stayed there for 14 years. Yeah. And um, and we were lucky that those two positions were both available at the same time and that that worked out. So there wasn't a special position created for one or the other. Right. That's nice as well. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm sure they did things in the background to make two positions possible, mm. although they hired multiple people that year, multiple yeah. technical people. Cause, yeah. Um, so we were both hired into the department. They were eager to have both of us, and we both really felt welcomed there. And that was a really positive way to start mm. out those positions. And um, yeah, so we had a, a wonderful time at CMU. And so the one thing that was hard was when he became department chair. Um, I don't think that CMU had a very structured approach to dealing with a, the kind of two-body issue that arises when your spouse is your supervisor. Oh, of course, I hadn't thought about that, actually. Um, it was hard to have my spouse as my department chair, and I had to learn to advocate for myself in ways that I hadn't really had to do to the same mm. degree before that mm. change happened. Um, but it, it didn't last very long because Anand was pursuing um, a position in administration, and when UW realized that he was the candidate they were looking at very seriously for the iSchool um, and that they wanted him to take that position, then I was I was a person for whom I was coming in second, right? Mm-hmm. So they made the offer to an end, if I'm remembering the timeline right, and then I interviewed, okay? Um, and so For a position been, that was openly announced? Well, CSE... Um, has hired multiple faculty per year for a number of years now. They've been growing very quickly. And so they were, they've been sort of actively and avidly hiring. And, um, the most senior person doing accessibility work there, uh, just became emeritus shortly after I arrived. And so there was sort of, I think, some interest in that. They also had people who were starting to get into fabrication, and that's a big area I've been working in for a few years now. And um, and the thing that happened is that they were really excited about me, even though there was a two-body mm. thing going on, and they mm. really showed it. I came out and interviewed, and um, right after my talk ended, a faculty member from Programming Languages ran up to me and said, this was the best talk I've seen all year. I'm so excited that you're here. And that was 
obviously a genuine yes. emotion. And yes. not only that, but while CMU was a place that was instrumental in my growth as a human computer interaction researcher and in supporting me through very difficult times, I was in an HCI department there and I didn't have a lot of crosstalk with mm. computer science. Yeah. And so I don't think I'd ever had a conversation with a programming languages professor at CMU. <laughs> and so it was striking to suddenly be in a place where mm. that kind of collaboration was possible. Um, and so, so I left that interview with a very positive impression of how I would be valued and also what opportunities might exist. And it was a lot easier to consider supporting an end yeah. with that kind of a um, moment in yeah. my experience of my interview. And That's great. So it was, it really was. And they also offered me a chair, which was a huge honor mm. and actually in Richard Ladner's name. And well-deserved. And so I knew that they, I mean, they didn't, they didn't have to do all of that in order to try to recruit me. So mm. I really felt wanted, you know, um, and, and that made it much easier to think about making this move. Yeah. And not only that, but, um, when we got there, Anand and I had a grant that we were both PIs on that we brought with us and the university treated the fact that we were married as an enormously important thing that had to be dealt with properly. Right. And it wasn't, they didn't make a big deal of it in the sense of like forcing us to do things that didn't make sense, but there was paperwork and there was attention being paid to that relationship. And in, in what way do you, do you mean that? Well, it's considered a conflict of interest, oh, okay, right? Yeah. And he's superior yes. to me, even though he's not my superior. Yes. Yes. Right. And they wanted us to come up with a plan for how we were going to manage that. And so this, this was after we'd accepted the jobs and already moved yeah. and knew we were going yeah. there. But it was interesting to me to see how differently two different universities could deal with that situation. Yeah. And reassuring, frankly, even though I made the choice not to be in an in-school, partly because I realized that it was difficult to deal yes. with that through my experiences at CMU. Yeah. And partly because I really was excited about being in a computer science department again, yeah. as I had been at Berkeley. Yeah. Right. But it, it is... Um, it is a thing that I think is sometimes overlooked. How do two couples who are so closely aligned in their research and their careers manage that conflict when mm. it occurs? You yeah. Know? So. so any advice or lessons learned that you to give to other people who might be in a similar situation? Because there are quite a few. Yeah. In, in our field amongst, I'm sure, and many others. I don't, I don't. Like what know. sort of key things did you put in that document where you talked about the conflict of interest? I, I don't know. I don't have good advice on this yeah. one. I think, you know, we have co-advised students. We've written grants together. He supervised me. We have also chosen to go separate ways at times. It is not a thing that I think I have really clear insight mm. into the best ways to deal with it. Mm. And by the time we were dealing with this particular grant proposal, even though I was glad to see the process in place, we had already made the decisions to be in separate departments. We have been doing this for many years and it really was sort of a boilerplate experience right. to fill it in. Yeah. I didn't have a yeah. lot to say or a lot of worries. Yeah. I was just glad they were doing it because it needs to be, I, I mean, the one thing I would say is that, you know, is not to ignore it, right? That, that I would rather have a, a university or a department be overly solicitous about asking, is there a plan? Do you know what you're doing here? Than the reverse. Yeah. Cause um, it, it, it's being proactive and right. it is trying to anticipate if and what problems there might be. Right. And, you know, I mean, CMU also did things like that. Like they, they 
they put the dean in charge of my promotion or my raises rather. And he was also uh, my faculty mentor after and then became my department chair. So I, I don't want to leave the impression that CU yeah. did nothing. Yeah. Um, and, and those things were really important to me working around and through the difficulties mm -hmm. I did have. Um, and I think that if, yeah, to do nothing or to not provide additional support is the worst thing you can do, right? Mm -hmm. And it may be that, that they have this. It's down. You know, they have it down. There's no issues. Mm -hmm. yeah. But you should ask if you're in a yeah. supervisory role with yeah. respect to this, right? Yeah. So, um, and it's not, I mean, it, it's not always easy also to be collaborators and spouses, right, which we have done. And so the, then it's communication, right? But that's that's true in any collaborative mm. relationship. I yes, think. it is. And there are just different dynamics when you know each other well. Right. Um, yeah. And you know, another, oh, you know, I guess the other thing I would add in terms of advice is that, and Nin and I have always worked very hard to set boundaries in terms of others communicating through us. So you know, people, well-meaning people, will frequently say, "Oh, would you mind telling Anin this?" Or assume that if they tell me something, Anin will hear it too. And that is absolutely not the case. You know, we, we, while we don't refuse to talk about work at home, we often have many other things that we would rather or need to talk about, the, like getting the time to sit down and just manage family issues and mm. talk about the kids and plan for all of that is easily mm. often eats up our quote unquote social time yep. during the, the yep. non-work time that we spend together. And, and I don't want people to think of us as equivalent or think of me as a conduit to an end or mm. vice versa. And so, that is a boundary that we set right from the very beginning, and I'm very glad we did. And that's explicitly communicating to people, managing expectations. Oh, yeah. No, if people say something like that, I say, well, you should probably email an end. Or I, I find nice ways to yeah. just make it very clear. Yeah. 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 And Washington has worked out well, the move, you know, because you moved with kids who are, you know, was it 10 and 13, you told me before they're, we started? Uh, they're currently 13 and in a few weeks, 15. 13 and 15? Yeah. Oh, goodness. God. Yeah. So my son started ninth grade this year and my daughter is in seventh grade. Yeah. Um, and it, it definitely made the move harder because yeah. we actually ended up dividing the family for a year so that our son could finish eighth grade in Pittsburgh and our daughter could start sixth grade in Seattle. And also because moving in and his parents during a what is really a difficult health time for them to mm. a temporary housing didn't mm. feel like a good choice. And so they also needed people back in Pittsburgh helping them. Yeah. And so Anand and I sacrificed our time in, in as a couple in the same city in order to make all of these right. things work and juggle them. And um, so, so there, there's certainly a lot going on around that. Um, but I also feel like our kids were able to be more supportive because we were supporting them and yeah. their needs. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say the move is over, right? I mean, we've only all been in the same city since July and um, we have a lot still to figure out mm. in terms of schooling and mm. medical care and other resources yeah. for the whole family, yeah. but we'll get there. Yeah. That's great. Um, are there any other, what, what's sort of consuming you now? What are your passions or interests or what's driving you? Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of it is still in this fabrication and assistive technology mm -hmm. realm, but I have uh, been drawn into a new research area as frequently happens with my research, uh, sort of just landed in something or discovered that I was passionate about it for personal reasons or whatever else. And so I'm doing a lot of work right now around uh, discrimination 
um, and also hoping to engage in issues around sexual assault as well. Some of it was driven by personal experience and some of it was driven by just uh, stumbling into data sets uh, in studies where things were happening to people and how could you ignore this, you know? Um, so I only have one paper published in this area right now, which is the one I just presented, or Kirsten presented yesterday mm-hmm. on how author order is determined in academic publication. But I have something in submission to Kai where we're looking at online reviews of doctors by patients and trying to understand how different gendered doctors and patients experience or report things differently. Um, frankly, the biggest effect we're seeing there is doctor gender uh, patients seem to be biased against female doctors, but there's also definitely things that patients are experiencing as well, the differences in how mm-hmm. patients of different genders experience the patient-doctor relationship. Um, and uh, not surprisingly, because chronic illness and particularly invisible chronic illness and women's issues are intimately yes. intertwined. Yes. And, and, you know, the experience I had of being told I was too young to lose my hearing or being dismissed is not unusual, right? Not so, unusual at all. So that's that's a domain we're looking in. But the biggest study we're doing is actually with students. And we have a group of 200 students that we had in a very intense study that Anand and I were collaborating on at UW. And it actually started at CMU. So we have multiple data sets of this type and where they are um, allowing us very generously to collect all sorts of intimate information from their phones. So um, what what peers or what groups of people they're communicating with, where they're going, uh, they're wearing Fitbits. So we have step counts, we have sleep, we have all sorts of information. And then they're also equally generously answering surveys twice a week about their mental health and, um, and coping strategies and engagement with school and also very extensive surveys at the beginning and end of each quarter. And one of the questions we asked twice a week was whether they had experienced unfair treatment. And among the 200 students, 91 reported unfair treatment. And among the 91, we have a total of 500 instances. Wow. And so we are Are now- these more um, like I didn't get the mark I wanted in the course or I felt I was treated unfairly in that sort of that sort of way, or, or is yeah, it so, more on sort of gendered lines and some of the other questions that you've yeah. been interested in? We asked about 15 different types of mm. reasons for unfair mm. treatment, and a majority, a, a large number had to do with gender, some with sexual orientation. We um, totally screwed the question up and forgot to ask about race, which we're fixing mm. this winter, um, but we also had national origin um, and other things as well. Um, and we're now doing interviews this fall to try to understand better what was happening, but we're also hoping to use machine learning and other techniques to understand how it impacted people. Um, so there's, there's a lot to do. Um, and, uh, we're, as I said, collecting more data. And then, you know, we have much fewer instances of sexual assault, but if you add relationship violence in, the numbers, um, are higher again in the end of, um, quarter, surveys. And so we're going to hopefully be looking into that as well. Uh, but it's just very, very early stages because we have this very mm-hmm. large data set and there's just a lot to do to even clean the data and yes. get anywhere with it. Yeah. But it's something I'm very passionate about trying to address. And and I think I mentioned that our sample was included 100 engineers of the 200 or almost 100 engineers. And we oversampled women and minorities and within that. And so hopefully we'll also gain insight into things that might help a more diverse population uh, succeed in STEM mm. fields as well. Mm.
And um, so th- are you doing this to have more policy implications than technology per se? Policy is definitely a piece of it, Mm. but um, the group of students that's working with me this fall to try to understand an interview is also tasked with thinking about intervention design. And Mm. the hope is that maybe we can um, do something in the winter data collection where we not only document what's happening, but maybe explore through either part of the sample or during part of the quarter period that we could sort of split off a group and Mm. and try to do something to intervene. So we'll see. Um, but I also feel like even being able to sort of quantify the immediate impact of these kinds of things on people mm-hmm. is something that would be able to provide insight that could influence policy or help us to better understand how we can support these mm-hmm. groups, right? So, because at least I was at a Vitae uh, researcher development conference in September in the UK, and one of the big what what felt like a big sort of theme discussion point was students and the stress that they're under and many of the universities there were implementing well-being programs targeted to undergraduates or, yes. or sort of and graduates whereas it sounds like what you're doing isn't just sort of treating the impact but looking at what's going why stuff is going on and how that can be addressed yeah, uh, stress is a huge factor and definitely something we measured, and it's way too high. It's way above yeah. the normal levels yeah. in the population at large among students. And I think that um, some of the other people in the project are really there because they care about mental health and stress, and that's a very, very important thing to mm. be doing. My feeling was that how can we talk to students about stress if we don't also ask about what I'm calling major life events? And so we have a whole panel of that that includes relationship violence, cheating, sexual assault, a death in the family, like, you know, all sorts of things that can happen. And I really think that those things also contribute to stress and, Mm. um, and trying to understand how, when does it cascade versus when people are able to cope is an important thing to do. And, um, so discrimination is one piece of that, but there's, there's a larger question here about how do you, especially because I, I I suspect, and you know, all of this is speculation right now because we haven't published on this yet, but I think that when you look at non-traditional student populations, like lower income, first generation students, often the stresses that they are dealing with at home are higher than for other populations. And and then on top of that, you have competition to get into the major and the other like standard quote unquote sources mm. of stress that everyone's mm. dealing with. And so um, trying to even just increase the compassion with which their professors are approaching their experience, I think is important. Yeah. Um, but also trying to understand how, how this affects people. And, and, and particularly I think, cause I think, you know, even speaking from my own experience, it's possible to go through some of these things and, if you have the right coping strategies and you're lucky enough to have the right support, it might not be the case that you're significantly more stressed than your peers who are not dealing with all of that. And in other circumstances, it might be much more difficult. And so being able to understand how we can help create the structural support and also the, um, the internal knowledge that can make it easier to deal with these things is both very important. Yeah, it is. That sounds really interesting. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of that work, yeah. both in terms of findings and the interventions that you come up with. Yeah. yeah. I'm lucky to have students willing yeah. to share that data and to yeah. be on this project. So, yeah. Yet again, your very positive um, orientation to life. <laughs> 
So yeah, it's more fun that way. <laughs> it, yes, it, indeed. So just just in wrapping up, are there any other sort of thoughts or things that I could have asked you about that you think people would find interesting or might help other people or <laughs> any final comments? I guess I guess the last thing I'll add is that you might not know it from this conversation, but I'm kind of a private person, right? <laughs> but I really think, and I've learned over the years, how important it is to to turn that inside out and, and allow myself to expose what I've been through for the, for others. And I just, um, I think that not everyone is in a position where they want to or can share those things, but I think that it's, it's important to when you're able to. And so I have learned a little bit about the media. I have learned, I have a blog about Lyme disease. I have begun to allow myself to be featured more. And it's not because I want the limelight, but mm-hmm. because I think it's important for people to see that this diversity exists in mm-hmm. faculty life and that you don't have to fit a particular mold in order to be successful. And so I just, I guess I would end by saying that, you know, I encourage you if you are also, um, I don't even know how to define it. I just think it's really important for anyone to share what the, not just what their successes are, but also what's been hard in order for everyone to know that we all go through those hard times and find ways forward. And I don't by any means think I'm unique in having had a real life experience that sometimes impeded my idealized version of what work was, Mm. you know, and we all have to find ways to balance that. And so, you know, I think that's just important to know and to share both, Um, whether it's sharing it with someone you're mentoring or more publicly. And recognizing that these can be more or less visible. Yeah. And more or less impactful, but they're still real for you if they're happening. Right. And they're there and that you're not alone in experiencing mm. them and mm. that, you know, that compassion that you learn from that is something to share with others too. Mm. So the giving on. Yeah. And I think that's a lovely journey that you've reflected there from the, you know, the person who was opening the door for you sort of you know, concerned about them not caring for people with disabilities and saying, who are they talking about to now embracing that as, as a rich and important part of your own identity that you can put out there. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that journey with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.